Hello, comic creators. Welcome to this week's episode of the Comics Connection podcast. As always, I'm Gamal. He is Andy. And we are here to talk about the developments and issues in the world of comic book publishing. Andy, how are you doing? I'm all right, Gamal. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, what I would like to start with today is actually a continuation of a very in-depth discussion that we had last night in the Comics Connection um, live video lessons. For anyone who is unaware, Comics Connection has a membership-only tier, and in that tier, we have quite a few, on every single month, we have quite a few lessons that go into specific aspects of the being in the comic book industry. And yesterday, Andy led a very comprehensive discussion about printing comics, specifically what it is you need to look for when you're getting a quote from a printer, what you need to consider in terms of pricing and timing and all of those other things. And it was very helpful, especially if you don't have a dedicated printer, you don't have a lot of books under your belt, you're trying to figure out the best way to go about doing it. It was an amazing class. But what I wanted to do today, Andy, because we're getting into convention season, and because quite a few people who are listening to this are probably looking at crowdfunding as one of their distribution channels, I was hoping you could actually talk about each one of those in the considerations that a creator or a publisher has to have when they're talking about doing things like printing for conventions, because San Diego's coming up and all these other things are coming up. So let's start there. How's that sound? That sounds great. And like it will take all of our time. Uh, for today uh so the the so printing for conventions printing for kickstarters and printing for broader distribution like bookstores comic stores and stuff like that they can all like the one underlying principle kind of for all of it is the more you can do all at once on a project the less expensive like per item per comic or per book that you're printing um it will be obviously if you can keep if you can reduce how much you're spending for every copy of a book that you're printing then when you sell that book you make more money every time you sell it so um that's not always possible um but you know i you know the most ideal situation is it's crowdfunded your comic uh or your book you you're you're also going to distribute it to bookstores and uh, direct market comic shops and, and those places. And you want to have copies of it for conventions as well, right? So you, so you want your own stock. You got like sort of those four things. The ideal scenario is that you would print all of that at the same time as one large print. And maybe you're going to change a dust jacket on hardcover for each one. So they all kind of look different for each of the markets or, you know, for, we're going to conventions, you want to have like a super exclusive version of it or whatever. But the interior pages between the covers, if that's all the same and the same size, you do that all in one print run and you're going to lower your costs on all of it quite a bit. Whereas like if you are like, man, I sold out on my stock or I didn't have time to wait for the larger print run. So I had to print some specifically for these conventions I'm going to that's going to cost you a lot more because it's a much smaller print run. Mm -hmm. So the more 
planning you can do at the beginning stages to plan out for these things in advance, the the, the better off you'll likely be. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what that really comes down to is there's a couple forms of printing. Um, full disclosure, I run a printing business called OMS Printing um, or Ons Printing because uh, I only create companies that have weird names like that comics experience, uh, um, uh, comics education thing I do. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we do what's called offset printing, which tends to be larger print runs. We pretty much have a minimum of 500 units that we'll do, um, but we'll do up to, you know, 50 or 100,000 units, right? So, um, and that's a high quality product uh, and we can do it relatively quickly and the more you print, the cheaper it gets. But if you're doing 500 or less, or you need them right the second, like as you know, it turned around in a couple of weeks, then you might want to do on-demand printing, you know, domestically, assuming that if you're listening to this or watching this here in the US, um, you know, you'll do them locally. On-demand printing is different. It's a completely different process. It's like having your home printer only much, much nicer version of it. Um, print out your book one copy at a time and then they staple them. Uh, where they bind them for a trade paperback or hardcover. Um, it's one at a time. So you're going to pay the same amount per book, no matter how many you do. So if you do 10,000 of them, you're paying the same as you would if you did three. Mm -hmm. But that per unit cost is going to be higher than if you did that off. If you did 10,000 offset, mm -hmm. it's going to be significantly higher. Um, so they're good for short runs, you know, maybe something exclusive or a version that you're, you're only doing for these like sort of short runs. That's, that's what they're best for. Okay. Um, as a publisher, I've gotten into a jam where something got tied up, uh, in shipping. You know, I, I'd done my planning properly, but something got tied up in shipping and a retailer absolutely had to have copies because they had in-store signing and I do a short digital print run just to make sure they had this stuff on time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sort of the, the types of stuff that you do. But um, that's what I used um, digital printing or on-demand printing for. Um, so with that, it really is about planning. If you know your convention schedule, and a lot of times you may not know the exact dates, but you'll know like, hey, next year I want, I know I want to hit these four or five conventions, or 12 or 20 conventions, whatever it is. And then just work your timeline backwards. Mm -hmm. you know, talk to a printer, hey, if I give you a book, you know, like this, um, how long will it take you to manufacture it, ship it, get it to me, all that sort of stuff. And then just work your timeline back. You know, you need it for the convention is usually the first week in April. Then you just work that timeline back. And then that'll give you what you need to make sure that they have final files. And then again, work backwards from there. So I need to have the book done so it can get designed. We can get final files ready and put into place by here. And then, you know, your deadline, your artist deadline, you know, um, from there. It's all just sort of working backwards from, from that date and giving yourself deadlines and then making sure you hit it or your team hits it. Okay. Well, I know one of the things that came up yesterday, especially when we're talking about offset printing, is the issue of the final files get to the printer on time. The printer prints the book on time. And then the printer, especially if you're doing international printing, China, Korea, Books go onto the boat. The boat actually sails across the ocean. And all of that happens on time. And then because of the pandemic, 
post-pandemic issues or because of other issues with customs or whatever, the book is now on a boat in a dock and you can't, that's something that A, you didn't necessarily plan for because it wasn't supposed to sit on a dock or, you know, on a boat. How do you, what kind of cushion should you actually be looking at if you're going to do a large print run? So all of your books for like the year are going to be on that boat. What kind of cushion do you think you should put in in the terms of a range to make sure that if it does get stuck somewhere, you're not going to like shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. Um, people, people run into this a lot. I mean, one of the, one of the realities is I get told as a printer, I get told we're going to have final files for you on such and such a date. And I almost never actually have files to print by that date. It's usually a minimum of a month later, mm. often, three months, three or four months later. Um, so I would say put as much cushion into your timeline overall as you can. Like if, you know, like as a printer, I'm probably going to, the first time you ask me for a timeline, I'm going to give you one with a little bit of cushion or I'll give you a range. Mm -hmm. Whatever the furthest out is that, that, that I'm going to give you, and I'll give you one with cushion because I don't want to I don't want you to come back and say hey it's, you said it was only going to take X amount of time and it took two weeks longer and now I'm hosed right I don't want that to happen I'm going to give you a little cushion you might push back and be like that's not soon enough what can we do and then there's a conversation right. about how we can potentially speed that up what that would cost or what it would entail you know, that kind of thing um, but yeah basically the sooner you can print it and get it moving the better because and I explained this last night like you're saying the shipping industry, a lot of a lot of pieces of manufacturing and production and shipping and all that stuff um, have have really done a nice job rebounding from their the height of the pandemic pandemic chaos and delays. Mm -hmm. But the shipping industry in the U.S., like just from Chicago to California or whatever, still broken. Right, it is really, really difficult to predict. A single package isn't that hard to predict, but pallets are much more difficult. Um, and gen, you know, probably you're going to be shipping them in pallets of books. Mm -hmm. um, much more difficult to predict. I could get into some of the reasons why, but I won't unless you really want me to. Um, the international shipping, like those giant container boats, they are still taking longer than they were before the pandemic hit but it's more predictable so hmm. it, it used to take you know kind of 30 days from our reprint in korea um to our port in long beach and now it's uh it was actually 10 days on the boat but the whole process was about 30 days um and it's now uh between two and three months for that <laughs> for, for the most part and that's that is still slowly getting better and hopefully we'll get it back down to something super predictable like we had back in the day um but where i'm running into most of my problems is actually once the books are in the u.s shipping pallets um, especially if it's just like one or two pallets because what happens is they go on those giant 18 wheeler trucks that have 24 pallets worth mm -hmm. of stuff on them and if you've got one or two of those pallets that means there's 22 other pallets going to different places and you don't know what order they're going to get delivered Right. So you know how many stops that truck is going to take, or is it going to go to a hub and then sit in a hub for a little while and then get loaded onto another truck? It's 
super unpredictable right now and mm. uh, very frustrating for everyone involved. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let's let's actually flip the scenario because I know that there's an issue on the other side. So let's say you you plan, you put in a lot of cushion. You don't actually have the delays that you thought you might have. And now all of a sudden, like, let's say you need the books in, I don't know, New York Comic Con's in October. Let's say you get the books, it's July. And now they're either going to, the pallet's going to sit in your house. How do you then plan for your storage considerations, both before and after the convention, especially if you're going to take some of the books and then ship it to one convention, and then you got to ship the unsold stuff back, and then you have to put that somewhere. So how does how does storage actually fit into the dynamic once you actually get the books in your hand, relatively speaking? So generally speaking, if you're going to run a Kickstarter, you know, um, or you're going to publish like one book a year, maybe two, um, for most creators, those aren't going to be giant print runs that are like multiple ballots. Mm -hmm. um, so for most creators or, you know, self-published folks, they will find a place to stash their stock in their mm -hmm. house, whether that, you know, whether it's a garage or a basement or an attic or in some cases, a living room. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have one, you know, one creator that, and this was a large print run, he stacked all the boxes around the, um, like like lined his walls with them because he also realized that if you put that many boxes in the middle of a room with no support your room is actually going to start to buckle and that's that's not a good thing um you didn't know we were going to get into construction class yeah yeah see now now you're now you're just talking about you know foundations and structures and i think it's now it's a home improvement show <laughs> yeah so uh but yeah, I mean, there's, you, you might have to get clever, you know, especially if you're you know, in like a one bedroom apartment in New York. Um, yeah, you, you wind up, you wind up having to get clever with that. Um, the other options are, you know, um, you pay a place to store it, right? right. You know, a storage locker or, you know, or a fulfillment warehouse if you want to go that route or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, the fulfillment warehouse that I was, wondering if that's kind of a better option if you know you're going to like C2E2 and you're going to MegaCon and you're going, you know, terrific con. And so you don't necessarily want to, even if you could find a space in your house for it, did you really want to like ship all of those books, FedEx or DHL to the convention? And then how does that, you know, work out in terms of picking the books up? Do you want to, I mean, a lot of times I tell people who are just starting out tabling at conventions, going local is often the best strategy because you could take the books you're going to sell, put them in your car, drive them to the place, and then whatever gets unsold, drive it back. As soon as you start to have to ship stuff back and forth, and the last thing you want is to have everything in the timeline go well. And then when you ship the books airmail from where you live to the convention, and then books never show up. And now you did everything right, except you still have no books to sell. And now you have an empty table. So in terms yeah. of... I mean, look, a lot of people want universal health care, mm. uh, like paid for by the government. I want universal shipping paid for by the government. That's what I... That's what I, I don't want any of us to have to worry about the cost of shipping our books 
anymore. Um, of course, the back problems you get from lugging all those boxes of books around, you're still going to need the universal health care. So uh, I guess well, yeah, darned if you do, darned if you don't. But yeah, I mean, shipping is, is shipping's expensive. So the the most expensive way to ship things is for you as an individual to walk to UPS or FedEx or DHL and ship it yourself. Right. That's going to be the most expensive because like these big warehouses that, you know, are shipping literally hundreds of thousands of packages or even millions of packages a year, they will negotiate better rates with all of the carriers, right? Often fairly significantly discounted rates just because of the sheer volume that they're doing. Now, They've got, they've reduced their rate. They're going to upcharge you for, for, you know, other, you know, above what they're charged, but that still may be less per box or whatever than you would pay shipping in, you know, just walking down the, the street to the UPS store. Hmm. So even though you're going to pay a, a fee on top of that and pay a, usually a relatively small fee per month to store your pallet of books there, um, it may wind up being financially more viable for you to do it that way and then have to ship it back. Mm. Now, is that uh, the same kind of, the same kind of analysis, same kind of dynamic if you're doing crowdfunding fulfillment? Like, does it make more sense in a lot of cases to just have all of the books delivered to a fulfillment house, knowing that crowdfunding fulfillment is is less of a hard date. Like once your campaign is successful, you don't necessarily have to produce, fulfill the goods by a certain date. Is it better to have it sent to the fulfillment house and then let the fulfillment house send each individual package out rather than have a packing party at your house when, you know, when it's time to send the books out? Well, I mean, I think the, the tough word there is better, right? Mm. Is it, as far as I'm concerned, it would be better for me because I don't particularly enjoy sorting a bunch of stuff, packing boxes and shipping them out. Like that's, I mean, maybe we could turn that into a really fun party. I have confidence that Gamal, that you and I could turn that into a really great party. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but there would be bourbon involved and people would get the wrong packages. I mean, it would, and, then, and then it is not a party. Exactly. Yeah. Now it's all, yeah. it's all a mess. So we shouldn't uh, do that. We shouldn't. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, bearing in mind that like you're taking a usually massive amount of labor off of your own hands and time, you know, and time commitment mm -hmm. to actually do all that, um, you know, going with a fulfillment company for something like that is likely going to make sense. Um, you will probably make less doing that than, than, um, than, if you packed it all yourself, like you won't have as much cash from the campaign at the end, hmm. but you also will not have run yourself into the ground and, and, you know, done a whole bunch of extra work, but you know, they'll, those places, they'll get discounts on the packing materials. They'll get discounts on that stuff and they'll charge you for all that stuff. Hmm. Uh, so if you're careful and you do your research really well about what does it cost me to buy a thousand Gemini mailers and some bubble wrap and the tape and all that stuff. And then what's it going to cost me per package to send them out? You can get a pretty accurate picture of what the overall expense of that's going to be. And then, and you can talk with fulfillment companies and ask them how they do it. And they generally, most of them do it by going, it's going to cost you 
X for materials, Y for the actual shipping of the mm -hmm. books, um, which will probably be a chart for different regions, different weights, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they have what they call pick and pack fees, which mm -hmm. means like if you've got five things that go into a package, then they're going to charge you like two bucks to pick up the first thing. And then it's maybe 50 cents or something for each additional item that goes in that package. So you can get a pretty good uh a pretty good idea of what those costs are going to be and you know if you look at it and you're like oh it's going to cost me 10 percent more mm -hmm. for the fulfillment company but i'm gonna have two weeks of my life that aren't back-breaking work where i'm also not producing anything new or i have to take off my day job work and that's my vacation time or whatever it may it may wind up making a lot more sense to, to do it that way yeah yeah i don't i don't see burning like vacation days like fulfilling Kickstarter campaigns as like the best way to go. So I think for your presidential campaign, you should, you should go with um, universal shipping for everyone. Yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. you should. You do know I'm running for a president of comics, right? Well, well, clearly, I mean, who else is going to, is going to take this job? Nobody, nobody else wants that job. Exactly. Because our next, our next topic is not necessarily, is, is even less fun than talking about shipping and storage and fulfillment. We um the American Library Association just announced the top thirteen banned books in America for twenty twenty two. Um, there has been a huge spike in the amount of schools and libraries and universities that are under fire for carrying or promoting or even discussing certain types of books. And the reason, there's two reasons why this is relevant, very relevant to comic book creators. Number one is that library distribution is one of the major sources of getting to new readers, and it is a viable distribution stream in and of itself. So if you can actually get your books into libraries and schools, you have a source of income that is significant and is growing. The other reason why it is significant is because one of the two or three of the top books on that list were graphic novels. So the number one book that has been banned across the country is a graphic novel called Gender Queer that was part of a, I believe it was a district court case in Virginia last year and that won out against like censorship rules that are there. So Andy, the question to you is, as a publisher, how do you how are you dealing with reacting to the rise of censorship in not just in libraries but also certain um certain municipalities it hits the direct market and the bookstores as well so as a new publisher how are you like dealing with all those things um as a new publisher it's uh it's not something i'm dealing with like it, and by that, I mean, it, if I find out that a book we published, because I mean, the vast majorities are, of these are, are, are challenged, I mm -hmm. guess is what the term they're using, right? Challenged because uh, of LGBTQ plus material, in them, mm -hmm. right? Um, some of our books have material uh, somewhat similar. Most of, the, most of the ones that are on the, the top 13 list like i mean it's very front and center um mm -hmm. we don't have a ton that are 
kind of you know that front and center but we certainly have tons of characters that are lesbians or are gay or, or trans or what have you i don't think about whether or not they're gonna get banned i think about whether or not the it's a story well told and a story worth putting my weight behind mm-hmm. um, my money my time my effort uh behind and should one of them get challenged then pretty much my my take on that would be to try and use that to promote the book uh-huh. uh, so as soon as we you know find out we're going to court like i'll hopefully sell a ton more copies um and make the creator more money uh-huh. uh, you know i'd probably fight ignorant stupid stuff like this in court uh-huh. um I, I don't know that i would have an option not to but i don't um I don't know. I don't like Nazis, so um, so I think I just fight it. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, then the the, the that next said though there mm-hmm. there was another article recently um, that uh, a friend of mine pointed out to me um, actually earlier today that I find is a little bit more not more troubling because this is troubling that this is happening in the United States at all, um, especially when you look at the number of titles has giantly increased year over year for the last five years um but uh it does appear to be having an effect on major publishers like they're starting to give notes to authors about like hey maybe we shouldn't say oh. this maybe we shouldn't say that so it's starting to have an effect um and that makes me angry and a little bit sad well that was going to be my follow-up question in terms of you get submissions from creators all the time for creator-owned projects. How much of that goes into your analysis of whether or not the book makes sense to put your weight behind? Like, if you had two stories that were both well-told, both professionally made, but one of them you knew was going to get you more flack, and one of them you knew was going to get you less flack, does that does the current political environment impact your decision of which one you go with? Um, uh, I, I, I have trouble seeing that being a real scenario. Okay. Right? Uh, you know, it's the whole Captain Kirk thing of I don't believe mm-hmm. in the scenario, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't think so. Um, ultimately, I mean, you know, there are so many different variables on how to make a decision of which to go with. You know, if we have a book that's fairly similar to one of those that's already on the publishing schedule, then I'd probably go with the other one, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I mean, there's just so many different variables that would that would impact my decision before I would get to that. Um, we've published some stuff that I thought, like, it's reasonable to think that we would get some pretty serious or unkind backlash for for publishing these so far we haven't and part of that has to do with i'm not random house right Uh i'm a a smaller publisher and largely i'm going to fly under the radar right um you know whereas if random house put out sereno or stud the bloodblade or you know one of these books that has a an lgbtq plus component um they probably someone someone would notice and be like, that's a big corporation and and they would make a big stink about it. 
Hmm. Other people will notice when CEX does it and go, CEX did it. And I probably can't make a big enough stink. I'll wait till Random House does it, or I'll wait till whoever else, Hachette or whoever. Okay. So what we're saying is once you get to that size, then you'll have the real problems. Yeah. But once I'm at that size, uh, which is totally going to happen, uh, <laughs> you know, then I, then I, is that really a problem for them? I, I, I don't know if it's individuals that are like reacting to it within the company, but I'd be surprised if up on top at Random House they're being, or you know, they're like we're being sued over gender queer. That's a problem. I think they're like we're being sued over gender queer. Let's go sell a million more copies of that book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it that is one of the the calculations that I point to a lot in um, when we talk about the rise in censorship is that paradoxically sales of banned titles maybe not in the jurisdictions where they're banned but overall they the banning of a book raises the profile of that book because a lot of people who didn't even know the book was there now all of a sudden hear oh this book was banned and then they go well why was it banned and then that notoriety leads to higher sales. So as you said, it may not be, I mean, it's not pleasant for the author, probably not pleasant for no. the editor, but for the- it's not pleasant for the company either. I mean, it's right. not pleasant for anyone, but I mean, if somebody's gonna throw something at me, then that is one way I see as resisting, as being like, hey, you know, thanks. We just mm -hmm. sold a couple more copies, uh, which means more people are reading it. I mean, that would be part of my strategy to try and communicate to people like, hey, maybe stop trying to ban books that aren't harming people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stop trying to ban books. Exactly. Exactly. So Period. I think what we, yeah, what we've come to in the conclusion of this is that your um, president of comics platform will basically be um, don't ban books and universal shipping for all. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty solid one-two punch. I yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like I'm I'm at the top of the primaries on that one. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't think I would be surprised if anyone came in with with a better platform than that. So <laughs> I look forward to your inauguration party. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Comics Connection podcast. If you want to be part of the discussions that we have on a weekly basis and get access to all of our video lessons and the Discord and get a copy of the Business of Independent Comic Publishing, there will be a link to joining Comics Connection in the show notes. So until next time, have fun with your comic. Take it easy, Andy. You too, Mom.